Right, well, we're going through a series at the moment of, of Colossians, aren't we? I mean, it's less of a series, more of an epistle. And um, we've been we're following the book of a, a, a Colossians, or Colossians, however you like to pronounce it. And um, my task has been to look at Colossians chapter 3. And it, it was a very broad mandate as to what I chose from Colossians chapter 3. And it was very difficult, so I decided to do it all. Okay, so we've got the whole of Colossians chapter 3. I'm not going to read it all, but you can do that because it's a very good book. But um, Colossians uh, begins, chapter 3 begins um, at verse 1, and it states this. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then it goes on to verse four that begins, therefore. Okay. If you were raised with Christ, therefore. Colossians chapter three is a a response, our response to a spiritual fact. The first three verses of Colossians chapter 3 lay out a statement of absolute fact. And the rest of the chapter is the required action of us, his people. Now, what I don't want to do at this moment is to say, you know, God has done this, therefore we do this. Because it can sound like that. I want to remind us all at the beginning that we of ourselves can do nothing without that indwelling grace of God and without him doing that work of transformation in us. So there, there is something in the, the fact that, that we have been placed in Christ that then begins an operation within us whereby he realigns us to his will and purposes. And Colossians is all about that. Um, it's a, a chapter that transcends culture, it transcends religion and philosophies. And the author of Colossians, I mean, I often think I want to talk about Paul, but actually the author of Colossians isn't really known. It's thought it could have been Paul. Um, But whoever is writing Colossians is looking at how there is a realignment of the church, the Colossian church, to a kingdom of God mindset. And it sets out a superior way of living and it radically contradicts the way that people are used to living. So who were the Colossians? Who were they? Uh, Because it's quite interesting when we look at who these um, epistles were written to. The former was the better one. (laughs) No lights at all. Uh, Colossae was a trade city. It was a major trade city. And it specialised in red wool cloth, which obviously was very popular. And it was part of the Roman province in, of Asia Minor. And it was situated in like the southwest um, corner of modern-day Turkey. So that, that's an orientation, but it was part of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the church in Colossae had been planted by Paul or his disciples and it was planted after the church in Ephesus. So it, it was part of that mission of, of going 
not only into um, the Roman world, but into uh, uh, places that were mainly comprised of Gentiles that had never, ever um, had anything to do with the God of Israel. Um, and that meant that there was radically different mindsets and ideas about how to live. And the church was led by a guy called Philemon. And Philemon was a slaveholder, and, and he traded slaves. In fact, Paul had written an entire letter to him about how to manage slaves and, and about what to do with an escaped slave. So immediately in our 21st century Western ears, this is like, oh, you know, this guy was a slaveholder. That was the culture of the day. And uh, Paul was directly speaking to him about how, how to treat slaves, but he didn't ever say, don't have slaves. And that's quite an important thing to remember. Paul was not seeking to change a culture. He was looking to reveal an alternative way of dealing with culture that was based on the kingdom of God principles. Um, the letter of Colossians is thought to be written by Paul or one of his disciples and this was while he was in prison and it was during the reign of the Emperor Nero who was renowned as a very cruel uh, man, a very cruel, insane emperor. Colossae was known for its fusion of religion, religious beliefs. It, it was a, because it was a major city on a river uh, many, many um, philosophers came in, many ideas, many religions. Uh, Colossae was, had been exposed to pagan religions, Gnostic beliefs, Greek philosophies, and angel worship. So it was not only a hodgepodge, it, it was probably a bit of a red light district to go with the red cloth district, if you know what I mean. So converts... And false teachers alike would have brought many ideas into the church. And one of the major ideas that was being brought into the church at the time was doubts about who Jesus actually is. Um, and the understanding of who Jesus is, is the foundation of our Christian faith. And the letter of Colossians as a whole sets out the supremacy, the uniqueness and the deity of Jesus Christ. It's an epistle that, that actually places God, Jesus firmly in the Godhead. And it, it affirms that Jesus can't be fitted into old belief systems. There is something that is called syncretism. Syncretism. Now, syncretism is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, in fact, we're in Down Patrick. I believe, got something to do with St. Patrick. And one of the ways that, that Patrick got out the gospel in Ireland was through syncretism. He would take the old belief systems and he would remodel them and refashion them, present them in a Christian package. The syncretism that we were talking, that, that was being uh, promoted in Colossae was the bringing together of these pagan, angel-worshipping, 
Gnostic Greek philosophizing ideas and sort of making a package out of them that at the end of the day was nothing like the gospel and it was detracting from who Jesus actually is. So what we're seeing in Colossians is that Jesus can't be fitted into an old belief system and that the cultural way of living in a system, in a town, in an area, that way of living and thinking and being matter and we have to examine it. We can't fit Jesus into our lives. He fits us into his way and his life. And that's really important because that is where the rubber hits the road. And that is where we go, I don't like this. I'm not even sure whether this is right. I mean, time and time again in, in the ministry that I have, which is, is in counselling and theotherapy, you know, I have people say to me, well, that's our culture. And wherever I've been in the world, I've had somebody at some point say, but that's the culture. Paul or whoever the author was, was not accepting that as an excuse. That actually, if our culture is clashing with the kingdom of God, then our culture has to be let go of. And it has to, we have to transcend our culture and we have to transcend our nationalism in order to have the kingdom of God established in our lives and manifest in our lives. Um, Jesus said that the kingdom of God needs to be within us. It's not something out there. It's not something that we are going to form out there. It's going to be the kingdom of God in us walking out there. We are the manifestation of the kingdom. Now, there's a pivotal word in Colossians. Right at the beginning of verse 1, a pivotal word. Everything hinges on this word, and it's the word if. If. If you were raised with Christ, if. Now, in English, this word can mean if and it may or it may not be. It's a conditional word. So, it was used up here. If the rain holds off, we will be having a picnic. Yeah? If it, the sun comes out, we'll go to the beach. If, well, let's see what happens, one or the other. But the Greek isn't like that. In Greek, and I don't proclaim to be a Greek scholar in any way, in fact, I'm more familiar with Hebrew than I am Greek. The Greek word if has different meanings depending on its grammatical construct. And you can have if that is conditional, or you can have an if that is absolutely certain. And the Greek word, which is ei, is sometimes translated since, because that's a more concrete meaning. And it's a word that demands response. It is the little bit of Greek grammar that I do know. It's in the aorist tense. Of course, you're going to remember, you're going to take this away this morning. You know, that's what I want you to take away. The aorist tense. If and it is. So if you are in Christ, 
in this translation of Greek is if and actually you are. It's not conditional. You are in Christ. And how do you know you're in Christ? Well, actually, you do. If you don't know you're in Christ, you're probably not. Because when Christ gets a hold of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, I tell you, sooner or later we know it. Because that relationship through Jesus with the Father is something that is an experiential walk as well as an academic theoretical walk. It's about relationship. It is not about religion. I guess an example of this could be a plant. Um, I remember learning in, in botany at school about tropism, which is a plant responding to light. Because of the inherent nature of a plant, it can't do anything else except respond to light. It, it, it is, if it is a plant, it will respond to light. If you are a plant, we haven't got any here. There's a flower up the back. Yeah, the one in the corner. If you are a plant, and you are, then you will respond to light. You will follow the light. If you are in Christ, and you are, then the response is toward him. It's one of obedience. Because God himself is at work in each one of us. And because obedience is a response to love in Scripture. Now, of course, obedience can be a response to tyranny, but we're talking about Scripture here. I, I had an interesting um, experience yesterday. I was teaching a course, and um, one of my very valuable colleagues actually did a teaching session yesterday, and she was terrified. Uh, she was. She, uh, it was interesting. The irony was not lost on anybody that she was covering the topic of anxiety. And her anxiety was there, close to panic. And after she'd finished, I sat down with her because I'd been following her outline, which was extremely good. And I, I said to her, what did you do well? And we went through all of that. And then I said, look, where did you struggle? And she, she told me. And I said, look, what are you frightened about? What is it that, what is the worst that could happen? You know, you've got an outline, you know the stuff. So just because on your first time, you might not feel you've presented it as well as you could have done, you know, that comes with practice. So what are you really worried about? Do you know what she said? It surprised me. She said, I might not have your approval. She wanted to please me. Now, why did she want to do that? Because she knows I love her, and actually I know she loves me. And it, it's like a child that loves the parent. Children, they can be really naughty, can't they? I mean, I've had them, I know. But actually, if there is a relationship of love, the child isn't out to get the parent. Now, the teenager might be, but the child, the small child isn't. Basically, children want their parents' approval and love. And in a relationship with the Lord, that is something of our response 
you know, I love you, Lord. That we love him because he first loved us. The response to love is love. And obedience is part of that package. I want, I can't please him, but I want to do what pleases him, if you see what I mean. So there's a title to this sermon, just in case you hadn't got it yet, because I haven't told you. How then should we live? How then should we live? It's more than just a catchy phrase. It's one of the great questions of philosophy. How we should live our lives, and does it matter how we live our lives? You know, the foundation on which anything is built is everything. Our foundation is everything. We are defined by our past. We, we see that in our society, people struggle to escape from their past. That unless something happens to change the foundation, we are defined, and in architecture, the foundation defines the footprint of a building. So that is not a fair system. You know, I, I, as I say, I work as a therapist. And, you know, I see people who've been brought up in really good homes with every opportunity. And they've got their conflicts. But they're nothing like the people that have been brought up in homes that have been abusive. Homes which have been neglectful. Where opportunities have been um, not been given. Where... Uh, Everything seems to have conspired against that child growing up to have the opportunities of life, the breaks of life. And I see both those sociological backgrounds in people. And it isn't fair, is it, that the foundation should define the present and the future. But unfortunately, all psychologists and psychiatrists know that it does. Unless we have a change of foundation... We actually can't change our, our lives. Or there is very little change that can happen. Walls built without foundations quite simply fall down. Now the author of Colossians tells us something amazing. We've been given a new foundation. We've been given a new platform. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13... It says, he, which is our Father God, has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Isn't that amazing? God has qualified us. I didn't qualify myself. He's qualified me. The Father in heaven has qualified. You couldn't get any better qualification. You can't get a better validation than that, can you? I mean, if you've got a, a degree, this comes from the top guy. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus. We're no longer trapped by culture, by education, social grouping or conflicts. Through Jesus, we can begin again. How then shall we live? Well, we need a complete paradigm shift. It's not easy. Fundamental change in our approach to life and the way that we assume things should be. Jesus said, unless you become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. 
Something about children, the building a new platform. They don't, all, they don't always get it right, they need help. It takes time, but they're building that platform. We've been born again of the Spirit of God according to the scripture. So it takes time to build that new platform, but we're being transformed. We're being realigned. We need to learn a new way of living. We need to accept that we need to learn a new way of living. We need to permit the Holy Spirit to question every area of our lives. Colossians gives us lots of things to think about. This isn't legalism. You know, if you don't do it this way, somehow there will be lightning and thunder and thunder and lightning and God will get you. You will lose something. You will be judged. No, the Bible isn't about that. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. But we've accumulated many issues over the years and God is saying they have to be addressed. And Colossians begin to, begins to address the th three majors of life. Three major areas. It, it addresses how we deal with ourselves. It addresses how we deal with others. And it addresses how we deal with God himself. In verse 5, it tells us, put to death your members. And the word members in Greek means to mold in clay. And it refers to parts of the human body. And particularly, verse 5 speaks to us about how we manage our bodies. And again, in particular, it, it, it refers to sexual issues. Now, it can refer to anything that pollutes and corrupts our bodies, whether that is, is alcohol or drugs or gambling or, or um, wrong behaviors. But it particularly speaks to the sexual areas of our lives. And um, in, in looking at some of the words that are being used, um, it, it, a lot of it will refer to something, and I'm going to classify it here, uh, as pornography. According to research, pornography is on the rise, with millions of men and women addicted to it. it it's not just a male problem. Should we be speaking about this in the church? Well, the author of Colossians did. The Bible speaks to us about the sexual arena of our lives. Pornography is not new. Um, in the Roman Empire, it was considered normal, maybe much as it is today on social media. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, we're bombarded with sexual images. And with the internet, pornography is so easy to um, access. Uh, you know, I've talked to, to, to boys and men, you know, in the past when magazines were hidden on the, under the mattress. But now it's just a click of a button away, you know. And so much about pornography is considered to be normal. But it isn't. Pornography violates human sexuality. It takes an individual into a very dark space. Pornography affects marriages. And according to research, pornography has an accelerating effect on the deterioration of marriage. It changes the expectation of normal sexual relationships and weakens the spousal bond. That's research. Pornography produces covetousness, which objectifies people and places a fantasy over relational reality. And pornography is a problem in the church. 
It's just the same as it was back in the day of the Colossians. And the Bible says it's idolatry because it's replacing something in your heart that becomes greater than the way God set things up to be. The author of Colossians says, put it to death, kill it. How do we begin with that? Because there could be people here that have got problems with that. Well, you've got to begin by owning the problem. And I would suggest that if there is a problem today, you don't have to say it to anybody. Come forward for prayer and actually look for one of us to help you. Begin a new platform in your sexual life. Verse 8 speaks to us of our emotional world and in particular anger. It speaks of words that shouldn't be spoken. It speaks of words of hatred, words with shame, words that put others down, words of cruelty and words which blaspheme. You know, singing worship songs with your hands in the air this morning and shouting at your kids and calling them idiots in the afternoon is akin to blasphemy. It, 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 it's a clash. It's not kingdom speaking. Gossiping about others is not kingdom speaking. Judging others and criticizing people is not kingdom speaking. We need to address that. We need to look at our lives and say, is that what I do? You know, is that what I do? Or are the words that I speak always words of kindness, words of validation and encouragement and acceptance? It's easy to give those words to the people that I like. What about the people I'm not so struck on? I can't like everybody. What about the people that frustrate me or irritate me? What about the people that I think are a bit odd? What words do I give them? Maybe I don't give them any words at all. You know, not giving any words at all can be just as cruel as giving the wrong words. We need to go out of our way to create an environment of the kingdom for everybody. And, and we're given an injunction, you know, in verse 12. It's a simple instruction, virtually impossible to keep. Well, I'd say totally impossible to keep without the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, therefore, as the elect of God, it's talking to us, holy and beloved. What a description. I, I, I look at my life sometimes and I think you're anything but holy. You know? Holy and beloved. He's talking about me. Talking about you. I mean, that gets me. Talking about me, holy and beloved. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Be kind to your kids. Be kind to your spouse. Be kind to your parents. Be kind to the people in your, your congregation. Be kind. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Be humble. Humility is a cross-shaped virtue. It didn't exist before the cross. Humility was a sign of weakness. But in the kingdom of God, humility is strength. Be patient. You know, let people get there. Don't focus on other people's walk with the Lord. Focus on yours. You know, don't focus on how you can change 
your husband, your wife, your teenagers, your kids, you know, your pastor, your leader. Don't, don't focus on that. Look at yourself. Put the mirror up to yourself, you know. Be patient with one another. And be tender-hearted. Let God do something in here that melts you. And forgive one another. Regardless of whether they say sorry. Regardless of whether they deserve it. Regardless of whether they even know what they've done. Keep short accounts. Forgive one another. These are really heavy. This, I mean, this is big stuff, isn't it? This is big stuff. I mean, how can any of us do this? And there's more. None of this is linear. You know, it's not an ABC. Without him, we can't do anything. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Live a life of worship. It doesn't mean live a life of going around singing. You're playing music all the time. It doesn't mean that. The word worship means to lay yourself prostrate in submission before deity. Lay yourself down. There is a song. I mean, it is a bit country and western, which I believe is a bit demonic. Um, it says, lay me down, lay me down. God, will you lay me down? You know, lay yourself down and let other people walk on you. Oh, isn't that opposite to what we're being taught about having boundaries, you know, and your own space and your own truth and all the other stuff that's yours? And the Bible says, lay it down. Lay it down. You know, when we start to allow the Holy Spirit to do these things in our lives and we become more aware, and, and that begins at the point of salvation. God is at work in us, his wonders to perform. We find that things need to start to shape up. Marriages shape up. They need to start to shape up. And if they're not shaping up, we need help to, with that. We see that Colossians reveals the structure of Christian marriage. The structure of male and female is revealed. We don't like this in 21st century Western world. You know, this is a bit of a problem for some women. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. You know, in some marriage services now, people say, I'm not going to promise to obey because I don't agree with that. Why should I obey? I mean, a man. Well, the Bible actually says, wives obey your husbands. Now, it doesn't mean you do every instruction that they tell you. It isn't about orders. It's not like a, a boot camp. This is about being a helpmeet. It's not about a power struggle and a control struggle. This is a big topic. Needs an entire week's preaching on this. And our husbands don't get caught up with your wives whether they submit to you or they don't submit to you because you've got an instruction which is husbands love your wives how? as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her you know, your job is to be crucified so she might thrive do you know 
wives will have no problem with this structure if they know that they're loved. We've got to look at that. Sub submission is not about worth. It's not about subjugation. It's about respect and honour. So respect and honour one in, in marriage. Um, great responsibility. Not being contemptuous. Cherishing. Giving each other the soil to become who God wants us to be. To blossom. Laying ourselves down for each other. Very high calling. Very high calling. And, and then families are to shape up. Children are to obey and honour their parents. I like that one. I've always liked that. I've always agreed with that. The kids haven't. But, you know, I just think, yes, that's on the money, that one. But, you know what? Fathers, dads, you're to take responsibility to stop provoking your kids, to prostrate them and, and causing them to experience anger. Your responsibility is for that. We, we had somebody in the course this weekend who, who said that his dad used to play fight with him and they would pin him on the floor. He could never win. And that meant that he got so frustrated because he was never permitted to win. Children need to win as well as dads. You know, when you're playing Monopoly or Scrabble, let your kids win. Don't frustrate them. Be tender with them. Be soft with them. Don't be so hard on them. You know, children will obey when they feel listened to, validated and loved. Study what discourages children. Study what frustrates your children. And if you are part of that frustration, stop it. How long? How long, oh Lord? Oh, good. I'll take a breath. I didn't realise there was a clock up there. Just shows actually glasses don't help in any way, do they? <laughs> Be overt in encouraging, validating, praising your children. Communicate emotionally with them. Tell them that you love them. Communicate security and love. And when they're distressed... Instead of telling them why they shouldn't be distressed because it's not logical or normal, you know, use what God has given you to take them and hold them. Children don't require much. And finally, there's a word in Scripture about slaves. Now, of course, that doesn't occur. It doesn't have anything to do with us does it the word about slaves how to treat you slaves because we don't have slavery now so we can gloss over that bit and not see it as relevant to us but actually it is because the church is full of slaves in fact society is full of slaves the bible says that we're all slaves we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. 
But we're all slaves. Slaves to something. We're slaves to our own issues of control. We're slaves to our own um, conflicts. We're, we're slaves to our fears. We're slaves to our anxieties. Oh, we're slaves to so many things. What it would be good for each one of us to be able to say is I'm also a slave to Christ. I am a child of God. And being a child of God does not be being free. It means that you become a slave of righteousness. Look at that. So let's see what the author of Colossians says to slaves. Us. It says, become obedient to God by obeying those that God has placed over you. Now, I don't like this one. Who's God placed over me? Who's God placed over you? Well, the first thing that came to mind was earthly authorities. My son is a police officer. My middle son is a police officer. I got a parking, uh, no, I didn't get a park. I got a speeding ticket. I got a speeding ticket. And I couldn't, I couldn't work out how I got this speeding ticket, you see. Because I was on the M25, which is usually the biggest car park in London. But the gantry came up as 50 miles an hour. Now, I was doing 70 and I was slowing down. And I got caught on a camera doing 67. I was slowing down. There's no justice in this at all. No justice. Because I was slowing down. So I got this ticket which says I've been snapped at doing 67 miles an hour in a 50-mile zone. And I just thought, no, that couldn't have been me. I never do 67 miles an hour. And I thought, that must be Jeremy because he uses my car when I'm away. And I couldn't remember dates. So I rang him and I, I said to him, Jeremy, I said, Were you, did you drive to London on this date? And he said, no, mum. I said, well, there, there's a speeding ticket. I said, it couldn't have been me because it's 67 miles an hour in a 50-mile zone. And I said, it must have been you. And he said, no, mum. He said, if you remember, you were home then and you'd gone to Birmingham. And I thought, oh, it was me. It was me. And I said, but I was slowing down. And I said, they haven't sent any photographic evidence. Can I appeal? And I heard laughter in the back. And he was in a conference with all the top police officers in the south of England. And they were all just laughing. <laughs> and he just said, suck it up, Mum. You were speeding. I said, but that's not fair. That's not fair. I said, I could have understood if they'd got me on the M40 as I came, because I was on the M25 and the M40 comes down onto the M25. I said, I was doing 110 then. That I would have accepted. <laughs> but I, I was doing, <laughs> I was slowing down. Now the fact is, I was a speeder. And I didn't see a problem with speeding. And I said, okay, well, maybe I could go on one of these speed courses. And he said, no, you were going too fast to go on one of these speed courses. 
You've got to pay the fine. And you've got to have the points on your life. You've got to take the consequences. So I chunted. But I couldn't get, away. I couldn't get past it. I had broken the law. I had disobeyed the earthly authorities over me. Nowhere in scripture does it say, if you agree with the earthly authorities. See, because I don't agree with this at all. See, my car tends to do its own thing. But do you know what? It taught me something. That actually, if I keep breaking the speed limit, I could end up losing my license. I could actually be in serious trouble if I was in an accident. But I would continue to have consequences. It would be costing me. And eventually, it would catch up with me in a very serious way. You know, that six points on my license is going to affect my insurance. It's going to hit me. And I thought, okay, I can continue because I'm not under law, I'm under grace. But actually... Colossians says, be obedient to those that God has placed in authority over you. Look at, at how you don't try and beat the system all the time. Become obedient to that. And then another one, your church leadership. Church leadership. You know, when we first join a church, we can think everything is wonderful. And then you get to know the elders and the pastor. And then they upset you. And they don't do it your way. And you don't agree with them. And they are unfair. And they're screwed up. And they need help. And they should be coming to see me more regularly. Um, and very rapidly we can begin to alienate ourselves from our church leadership. You know? Those that God has placed in authority over us. Church leaders, you know, those of us that stand up the front, those of us that rule our churches are just human beings. Some of them have had a calling placed upon their life that they just don't really want. They just don't think they can measure up to. In fact, I don't know that I've ever met a real leader in the church that feels that they're worthy of the position up here. Not at all. It's like, what, me? It's like Moses. Remember when Moses got the call of God upon his life? And he said, please God, send somebody else. If you're ever in eldership, if you're ever in leadership, if you're ever a preacher or a teacher or a worship leader, sooner or later you're going to utter those words, please Lord, send somebody else. I, I just don't need this. Blow that for a game of soldiers. Why? Because we are fighting constantly against the people that we're wanting to serve. Now, whether we serve well or whether we don't serve well is, is we need your help, you know? We need your help. Be obedient as slaves because your leadership are also slaves. They're also slaves. In the same way as they're slaves to righteousness and Christ, they're also slaves to their own conflicts and their own culture. And they're in this process the same as you and you know most of the time they might be half a step ahead you know we'd like to think that they're pioneers and they're leading us into the promised land most of the time they've lost the sat nav you know it's by grace 
kind to slaves. Remember, you're one. So how then should we live? Well, we begin with a new foundation. If any man be in Christ. Is that word for you? If? If, and I don't know if I am, I may or I may not be. Make it certain. If you don't know that you're in Christ, then take the opportunity to say, Lord, come into my life and change me. Please, will you make me anew? Will you build me afresh? If you feel the need, you can come out with people up here praying for you. You know, um, there's no formula. Lord Jesus, I confess my sins. I lay everything at the cross. You can do that if you like. No, the very moment where you say, I think I want, I think I want to be a follower of Jesus, means he's done a work in your heart so that you've actually been able to respond. And you begin that journey, the new foundation. But if you are in Christ, and it's the Greek, aorist tense, if and you are, you know you constantly need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. There isn't one moment in time where you can say, well, I got filled with the Spirit when I was 18 and I spoke in tongues and, you know, it was wonderful. Um, no, it's a constant encounter with the living Christ, an encounter with him. And if you, you've been a while since you have had that sense of presence and you've had that sense of being overwhelmed by the love of Jesus, then again, come forward for prayer. Come to the conference. Go and find somebody who will minister to you, who will work with you. All of us need to let God transform us. And all of us need to kill the old. We need to let go of our culture, our religious ideas, the things that we think because they're superstition. You know, we need to, to let go of those and we need to be teachable. You know? Each country has its unique issues. And Ireland has got a few of them. Nearly as much as England. Don't kill me. You know, we need help. We need help. I need help. And so this morning, I'm standing here before you and I'm speaking to myself. My life needs to be realigned. My life needs to be transformed. And if the worship group could come back up and we will go on to the next, the final part of our, our service. Ask him to help you. And go home and study Colossians chapter 3. And say, Lord, will you so change me that my life is realigned so that it comes into that alignment with what your word says? Make me the person you want me to be, not the person that I want to be. We will find out it's the same thing in the end. You're the person that God wants us to be. When we get there, we think, yeah, that's what I've always wanted in my life. Because what we're searching for is not a thing or a dream. What we're searching for is that sense of the peace of God ruling in our hearts. The peace of God that passes all understanding. I I'm done. I'm finished. With this. But I'm not done and finished with the journey. And hopefully nor are you.